Harvard Divinity School. Religious literacy and nurses' stories in the age of COVID and anti-Asian hate, May 8th, 2023. So welcome. Uh, it is so lovely to have folks with us this afternoon. My name is Anna Mudd. I'm a program specialist here at Religion and Public Life at Harvard Divinity School, where our mission is to promote the public understanding of religion in service of a just world at peace. And here at the RPL, I have the privilege of working with educators in pursuit of that goal, developing resources and professional development programming to enhance religious literacy in the classroom. And it is my distinct uh, privilege uh, honor, pleasure to welcome three guests with us this afternoon, scholars, educators, and students whose work has intersected in some really lovely and moving ways this past spring, um, and are here with us today to discuss Filipino nurses' stories in the age of COVID and anti-Asian hate. As stated in the webinar's description, as we look back on the first three years of the pandemic, um, increasingly complex stories are emerging. And here at RPL, we're really interested in how the lens of religious literacy and also justice and racial justice can help inform how we're thinking about which of those stories um, we are seeking out, telling, analyzing in our classrooms and with our students. So we're going to hear from each of these wonderful guests uh, on that question as we sort of tell the story of how that collaboration evolved. But I'm going to introduce each of them now. So Dr. April Monolang is an associate professor of interdisciplinary studies at Norfolk State University, a historically Black college and university in Virginia. She's trained in the social sciences, and most recently, Monolang secured the competitive sabbatical grant for researchers from the Louisville Institute for her project, Filipino American Nurses, Faith and Professional Communities in the Age of COVID and Anti-Asian Hate. Additionally, the Asian American Center, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and Religion, Race, and Democracy Project, University of Virginia, appointed her as a fellow. And I believe this is hot off the press's news, but her research is additionally funded from the, uh, has secured funding from the Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Life at Columbia University and the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. So congratulations, Dr. Manoeng. Jeannie Shin Cooper is a social science teacher at Buffalo Grove High School in Illinois and teaches human geography and college world religions, where she believes in the importance of exploring issues of social justice with youth. She's a national board certified teacher and holds a master's in education and social policy at Northwestern University, as well as a master's in geography at the University of Oregon. One of her most professionally fulfilling experiences was completing her religious studies and education certificate through the Harvard Extension School. And I think we'll hear a little bit more about that later on. And Audrey Rowe is a high school senior attending Buffalo Grove High School in Illinois. She is the co-founder of the school's Asian Student Association and participates in both the chamber orchestra on the viola and in Sori Beat, a Korean performing arts team in Chicago. As a student in BG, she has taken multiple exploratory classes, such as college world religions, where she has realized a strong passion for social justice and fostering inclusive communities. She hopes to study sociology and politics as she continues her educational career at a four-year uh, four university. Audrey looks forward to learning more about Filipino American nurses as her class assists Professor Monolong in her studies. So welcome, everyone. 
So we're going to hear from everyone, but I'm going to start with you, April. Again, welcome. And I would love to start by just having you tell us briefly a little bit about what brought you to this project, this research project of highlighting the stories and voices of Filipino nurses, particularly during the pandemic through uh, your work at NSU. Well, thank you for the very warm welcome. And I'm really excited to be here. And, and for me, this really, as I shared with Anna previously, this really started out as a uh, personal experience within my own community. I come from one of the largest uh, community Filipino communities in the Southeast in uh, Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads, Virginia. And um, being from one of the largest Filipino communities in the East Coast and in the South, all of us experienced the pandemic and it was such a traumatic event. And in my community and also globally, like nurses are very prominent and they were such heroes. And I'm not sure if any of you were aware of it or you may have heard it, but that like one um, out of three of the nurses that all died during the pandemic were of Filipino descent. And when I first heard that, I thought, well, maybe that's just an exaggeration or maybe maybe that's, I don't know, I maybe I was in denial because that was shocking for me to hear. But as I watched the news, I didn't really see much about it. I saw that it was factually documented, um, but I just didn't really see it being covered on the news much. And to this day, there's really not that much coverage. And so there was that going on. And then seeing at the same time with that, like, during this period of time, anti-Asian hate spiked and it like, and it really became very intense in 2020, like it jumped up to 145% spike. So here you have one out of three nurses who are Filipino who are dying. And I'm personally witnessing it in my own community, feeling it's, it's, it's very personal impact. And then at the same time, the anti-Asian um, hate and so that really struck me and like also just like to be really personal at the time, like I had just, I had just gotten married, like I well signed the paperwork and then had a baby. So just feeling even more vulnerable about just the whole situation. And then some of the nurses and because being in a small community, we all know each other. And so some of the nurses reached out to me and they said, they were calling me and said, April, do they care? Do they see us? And it really struck me. And I said, well, what can I do to help? And they said, is there a way that that you can make that happen? And I said, well, I'm not a nurse, I'm not an expert in uh, public health, but we can maybe share your stories. And that's how it started. And so since then we've been conducting um, in-depth interviews in my hometown in Virginia Beach. And now with the generous funding of the multiple universities that Anna shared, uh, we're going to expand it internationally. And thankfully with the help of uh, Ms. Cooper and her amazing students, we're going to have a Chicago site, a New York City site, uh, a site in, uh, in Europe, possibly Germany, and then a site in Asia to really not only just look at um, Filipino nurses in the United States, but across the diaspora and like really think about questions about um, resilience, immigration, identity, uh, burnout, and how the role of God may play in coping with those aspects, because really central to this project, which came out naturally on its own through these conversations within the community. I said, how did you survive? How did you manage? Because I don't know how I would. 
And they said it was their deep faith in God. And that intersection really fascinated me and pulled me in. And so we were really all grateful for you to be here today and to be part of our project and in illuminating um, my community and our stories. Thank you so much for that really moving background and your own positionality and situatedness, as we call it, that brought you to these questions. Um, and we're gonna hear a little bit more, I think, about your teaching context later on as we circle back. But let's hear a little bit um, from these nurses. So we're gonna play some clips. Before then, as the three of you know, and we'll talk about a little bit more, a key part of our religious literacy methodology is this analysis around power, peace, and violence and this triangle of direct, structural, and cultural peace and violence, and how those sort of structural, institutional, and uh, cultural embedded dimensions can lead to the more visible forms of violence that you were talking about, April. So do you want to give a little bit before we cue in um, to those clips, a little bit of historical background that will help to situate them for us? Yes, I'm happy to briefly share just a little bit about that background. And so a lot of people have been asking me, which are really great questions, like, well, why did so many of the nurses die? How, how come it was so many Filipino ones? And it's not a coincidence. And so, like, when we think about the colonial history in the context of the Philippines, uh, the Philippines is the, uh, is the only, like, major uh, country that the United States clearly colonized, like the first, the only like Asian country. And so with that colonial historical relationship that had already pre-existed, what had happened was like during the early 20th century uh, colonial rule, the United States had experienced a shortage in the American hospitals. So there was that shortage during that period of time in the early 20th century. And according to expert uh, Catherine Chineza Choi, a sociologist at Berkeley, she said that the United States had at that period of time begun to recruit and seek out nurses across the world, but particularly in the Philippines. But because of, because of the colonial rule, Filipinos had already spoken English. There was already um, a Christian kind of uh, colonization there background so it was it was in some ways easier to recruit from the Philippines and it was out of that relationship that the Philippines in turn developed a lot of nursing uh, schooling and to this day it, that is why according to the United Nations one out of 20 nurses in the world in the entire world are of Filipino descent because the United States uh, because the United States first really promoted that, and then the Philippines in turn developed the schooling for that. And so, with that colonial rule uh, for a lot of Filipinos and especially the nurses, that was in their mind their pathway towards American citizenship. Filipinos are the largest immigrant nursing population in the United States. And again, one out of 20 nurses in the world are Filipino. And so these Filipino nurses, this is their way of, of providing for their families. They usually send home what's called uh, remittance. So funds or balikbayan boxes or care boxes. And they bring, and so it's a, it's a circular exchange and they send back like things like spam. If, I don't know if any, I grew up eating spam. I don't know if you, if any of you know spam, but so spam, toothbrushes, shampoo, like care products. And so this is really a strong relationship to this day. Um, and it's also called like what sociologists call like a labor brokerage state where you have this economic transaction that was 
that was really deeply rooted in the colonial context and that history. And so, um, and the last piece I'd like to share with that is that there's this added layer of religion that really is part of that colonial context that doesn't really get discussed broadly in the scholarly literature, which is that because over 80% of Filipinos are Catholic because of that former colonial rule with not only the United States, but previously much longer Spain, that a lot of the Filipinos, and even in the research today, report that they feel like their um, being a nurse is, is, is a calling from God, number one. And then number two, a lot of the nurses that I've interviewed um, have said that they feel like their American citizenship is a blessing from God. And I'm going to write that down because that's something that's something that's going to really kind of ring throughout the entire, I guess, day is like the blessing from God about that American citizenship. So what that means essentially is the reason, you know, so circling back like a hobbit, why did so many Filipino nurses die? Well, there were more of them, number one, but number two, because they, in my, so my theory, at least based on my research is because these Filipinos felt like their citizenship is a blessing from God. They felt like they that that if they complain, if they complain that they're being ungrateful. And because I asked them, did you complain? Did you let HR know that you're you're like the first one in and the last one out? And there was that hesitancy. And so my theory for my work is that because of their deep faith in God, on one hand, it helped them cope with the pandemic, which was great. On the other hand, again, religion is so complicated. It also held them back or hindered them from complaining or politically mobilizing because they said, it's a blessing from God, I should be grateful. And so that's really that colonial uh, aspect and the power dynamics that really complicate this research and give it more nuance uh, as well. Thank you so much for that really critical history. Again, hearkening back to that um, typology of, of power, peace and violence, one of the things we often say is that cultural violence is what makes structural and direct violence invisible, or particularly structural violence. And I think the stories that you're telling are such often unknown or unheard stories um, that becomes invisible, right? That becomes a form of cultural violence when those stories aren't told and that context isn't known. But thank you so much for that. Um, so let's hear a couple of these clips now. So Rochelle, why don't you queue up? And actually, April, do you want to just really quickly say the, the theme or the topic of the two clips? So in these clips, you're just going to get to know these Filipino nurses in my hometown. It was really important when they cried to me about, like, does anyone see or anyone care that I didn't just write some, some irrelevant article scholarly article that only one or two people would read. No offense to other scholars. It's just, I mean, that's that's the truth. Usually only a few people read it. And so part of the work that I've been doing is to craft a podcast. So it's in the draft stages, but now we're going to hear their voices and their very important perspectives. On top of the pandemic, anti-Asian hate spiked 145% in 2020. I asked the nurses if they faced any of this discrimination themselves, and a majority did. Here's what they had to say seen a lot of the news about anti-Asian hate, right? And particularly that elderly person um, that was assaulted in front of a condominium on her way to a church to pray. And of course, that other Filipino whose face was squashed. And actually, somebody got mugged 
and close to Philippines, a Filipina. It was around the Asian aid. And sometimes, like, is it because now that they don't know who you are, what you are, all they know is you're Asian. Mm-hmm. They don't know you're Filipino. Yes, I've been told by a patient, go back to where you came from. Awful. I felt like, wow, you know, I'm a professional nurse and I've been a nurse for 30 years and how dare you say something to me like that. Yeah, it has happened to me. I came to the United States as a young adult. I was 21 when I came here. My first hospital was in Texas, a small town, a small sleepy town in Texas. It was a retirement community. So we had a lot of patients who were uh, in Vietnam. So you can just imagine some of the criticisms that was directed to me. They questioned me as a nurse and they said, because of the education from the Philippines, And I said, yeah, I was educated in the Philippines. I was Bachelor of Arts and Economics in the Philippines. When I came in here, I don't want to work in the bank. So I went to school here. I went to Hampton University and got my bachelor's degree. And so they stopped. This is the complaining. I remember being called by an older, I guess he he was a veteran of the time from Vietnam. And he he called me Viet Cong. Yes, yeah, that was one of those. I mean, not just with patients. I remember a physician, I was doing my chart and then he told me to stand up. He needs that that spot. Nowadays, you cannot do that. Or, you know, at the early part of my career, you know, um, a physician throwing the chart on the floor. Color or, you know, my race. But, you know, people do talk down to minorities. I couldn't help but be struck by these deeply moving and personal interviews. I wondered, with over 80% of Filipinos identifying as Catholic, what role did faith play in coping with anti-Asian hate and the pandemic? I believe that I am here on a mission, mission by God, that every track I take is because of him. I think faith is central to everyone, at least for me, uh, growing up in the Philippines, being raised as a Catholic, faith has always been um, part of our day-to-day practice. I think my relationship with God has always been a steady one, and I think it's always been, I never forgot that God was was always there for me. And I think that's just part because of my upbringing, because my parents, my mother especially, she'd always go, did you go to church or did you pray to God? She taught me how to, you know, do the rosaries. And then I think with what was going on with COVID at the time, uh, faith has been really the one that connected a lot of us because you can see the number of nurses that join the um, rosary prayers every night. I think prayers kind of kept the positivity going, as well as not just for me, but praying for those that, you know, needed or wanted the prayers if they were sick or because some people were far more affected by COVID than I was. 
I do the Our Father through Hail Marys. You know, I have a set of prayers that I do and it's like, it's automatic because by the time that I arrive to the parking lot of my hospital, I'm done. Oh my God, and I pray for them. And I pray that it will be controlled. I pray that it will not affect my families, affect me, it will not affect me, my coworkers. I do a prayer for them. And then after that, when that new patient comes, new assignment comes, I have to face the real thing again. In reality, I have to be there for him in reality, for this patient, the next patient that I have. It's just, it's this, it was painful. The conclusion of that group there, we can hear how powerful those are. In that first set, I was thinking about, I think a colleague of Jeannie's and perhaps Jeannie as well uses the iceberg visual metaphor for thinking about direct and structural violence. And I was just struck by um, those really disturbing experiences with direct violence and just the sense of how much that history, those structural dimensions um, are informing those experiences. Um, so I'm wondering if you can say a word now that we've heard some of those voices, just a little more about surprises that you heard, uh, 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 key takeaways from some of these initial interviews, anything that surprised you. Again, coming that, back to that theme of how religions surfaced. We'll talk a little bit more about the religious literacy dimensions, but, but um, what are some of your initial findings or surprises at this point? I mean, at this point, I think what shocked me the most was how um, how emotional it would be. Like even just hearing it now, like I get a little teary eyed because I didn't realize that this was the first time that a lot of these nurses actually talked about any of it, about any of it, like mo that they had all they had bottled it all up inside and um they clearly didn't tell human resources. They didn't complain because they felt like they're just being uh, an American citizen or being in the U.S. is a blessing from God. So they just felt like they were even lucky to be here. And so for them to have an opportunity to, to be seen and heard was really um, cathartic for them. And like you can hear their voice quivering because there's a part of them that's also a little bit afraid. Like... At, but they still came forward and shared their really meaningful stories. So that really um, struck me. And then the second thing that struck me, and it's just been playing in my mind over and over again. And, and um, this is like the main takeaway if, if, if from, from me in terms of what was, what's like really striking out at me is just like, when you think about like the arc of the pandemic and what we all experienced and we thought like, when it all happened and people were saying, oh, these are heroes. Look at all these heroes. They're really risking their lives in the hospitals. How amazing are these people? So there's that huge narrative and that was on the news and that was very prominent. And I imagine all of us saw something on the clips about like some kind of sweet story about a, a about a hero in the hospital, the nurses, that that was that was a trope that continuously played throughout the pandemic. So there was that on one hand, but then just thinking about putting myself in the shoes of the Filipino nurses and being like, what the fudge, man? Like there's all this positive media about being a hero, but then people are telling me to get the F out of here or get the fudge out of here and be, and like that I don't belong yet I'm trying to save their lives and I'm still praying for them. 
I'll be honest, I'm probably definitely, well, not probably, but definitely pettier than them and not nearly as mature or graceful because I don't know if I would have been praying for the same patients who would have been insulting me and still wanting to treat them because I'd probably be like, nah, nah, I'm out, I'm out. Yet these nurses still consistently, they consistently prayed for their patients. They consistently showed up to work and helped them, these help people. And I just, I admire their, their deep faith and their strength because I'll be honest, I don't think if, if someone talked to me like that, I don't know, there might've been a fight. <laughs> so, so that's the big takeaway for me. Like I just, that the irony of, of being the trope of the hero being shared on the media and then their lived experience being very different. And that, and that's the reality for them. So I hope that makes sense. So, yeah. Absolutely. Such a critical point. And as we've talked about, we're increasingly at RPL, especially in the, in our work with educators talking about this notion of deep story and these embedded narratives that often have religious dimensions yeah. and that these very embedded stories, like the notion of the hero, um, yeah. as applied yeah. to frontline workers, often they reveal certain things and they conceal certain things explicitly or implicitly and often forms of violence, right? So what are the forms um, of violence or structural inequity that were concealed by that hero narrative? Um, and I think the overall story that you're showing and these very uh, critical voices, individual stories, are really serving to complexify um, one of those initial narratives yeah. that was so yeah. prominent in the early days of the pandemic. I mean, like the last piece of this, as we're talking, Anna, is like, you know, we think a lot about, um, you know, that term being thrown around a lot is like, oh, model minority kind of stereotype. We hear that a lot. We, but we have not really seen much research or discussed about like why that persists and the role of religion in actually like um, reinforcing that. And this is a case study that shows that religion has very ambivalent effects. On one hand, it really helped these Filipino nurses cope and they prayed to God and they felt they felt a deep sense of, of, of um, security with God and among their group to pray to God together. On the other hand, <laughs> Because they felt that their blessing was truly of American citizenship was a blessing from God, they didn't feel like they should politically protest, that, that they should organize, that they should complain, because that they felt like if they're complaining against the United States or their the human resources, then they're not being grateful to God or, or being grateful for the blessing of their American citizen, their blessing of American citizenship, which in turn would actually kind of reveal some of the structural violence involved with, with the kind of model minority kind of stereotype that that may that and reveal how how religion plays a role with that. I honestly haven't read much research about that, that connection. So that's another kind of big takeaway that I'd like to explore as we continue further on in the project. Fantastic. Thank you so much for highlighting that really critical piece of complexity there. And we'll keep that thread going, I'm sure. But let's welcome Jeannie into the conversation now. And similarly, Jeannie, I'm going to ask you to start out just by first telling us a little bit about what brought you to this work. So actually, if I can ask you to talk a little bit about what brought you to the work of religious literacy, of um, embedding that in your classroom teaching, and then what led you to reach out to April? And then we'll we'll hear more about what happened after that. 
Sure. Well, I have to first say that the foundations for the College World Religions course um, that's offered in District 214 here in Illinois, um, Buffalo Grove is a part of that district, was really led by one of my colleagues, John Camardella, who's been doing a lot of work with the RPL for several, several years. And um, I knew I wanted to teach something new and dynamic. And um, when it was presented to me that I could take on this, this course, um, I kind of jumped at the chance. However, it required me to get a certificate in religious studies through the Harvard Extension School, um, which at the time I was a little reluctant to start a whole new graduate program because I felt like I had already done a ton of years of schooling, but um, it was one of the best programs I have done in my um, in my like educational career because I learned so much. Some of the things that you've mentioned, Anna, the um, just the structure of Galtung, um, the idea of uh, these narratives, these hidden narratives. Um, Galtung, I mean, I use it in my college world religions class, but I use it in all my classes, all the way from um, my sheltered course for human geo and also with my AP human geography uh, students. I just feel like it's such a valuable tool to have my students understand inequities. Um, so anyway, I was in a focus group with Professor Monolong, um, just doing some work for the RPL. And although I didn't understand the entire scope of her work, in her voice, I heard that she was trying to disrupt narratives and promote that internal diversity within religion. And um, being an Asian American woman, I just immediately like, something clicked inside of me where I was like, I need to get her email and follow up with her. And um, Professor Monlong was just absolutely open doors about it. She was so receiving. Um, and I eventually asked her to be a guest speaker in, in my world religions class. I'm sort of at the point in my career where if I hear anybody kind of like say something that sparks interest, I'm like, okay, can I have your email? And will you be a guest speaker now? And more often than not, people say yes. And so um, I asked her, you know, our, our unit on Christianity, um, we spend a lot of time focusing on um, the, the formation of the United States and, and being a, a Christian nation. Um, but within that, you know, it, I wanted my students to be exposed to internal diversity with uh, Christianity and and sort of like understand how religion is culturally embedded. Like everything that Professor Monolong was talking about, the intersection of religion with colonialism, with history, with immigration, with the workplace, with COVID. I mean, all of that just shows how religion can be so embedded. Um, and then having my students sort of um, understand how to break down and like see all the layers that, again, like you mentioned, may not be at the surface, surface level. Fantastic, thank you so much for that. And I know there's been multiple dimensions for this partnership. So I'll ask you to, you both to talk a little bit more about that. But Professor Monolang, maybe I'll ask you to add on there. And I wanted to say in some of our initial conversations together, a theme I noted that kept coming up between the two of you is we can tell different stories not only amongst this sort of um, these really critical historical narratives, the sort of internal diversity that Jeannie was talking about, 
but even amongst the conversations that was that were happening with students. So Professor Mundling, maybe you can say a little bit about your experience um, uh, connecting with Jeannie, talking to these students, and some of those other different or disruptive narratives that came up. When Jeannie reached out to me, I was just so enthralled. And uh, it's truly an honor and a privilege to reach, reach out and connect with her students. Like they're amazing and she's a phenomenal teacher. And just to see how uh, much they care about social justice and bringing marginalized voices to the center and how they can uh, engage in social justice through research. And because they said, as soon as they heard the story about the Filipino nurses, they said, how can we help? What, what can we do? And I said, well, let's continue to uplift their voices. Can you, can you or are you interested in uplifting their voices and doing interviews where you are in your hometown, in your area? And miraculously, they said yes. And so we're working on that now and very actively. I mean, we just had uh, the ethical training this morning and went over the interview guide, the consent forms. And so it's just very exciting to see the students so deeply invested. And um, it was really neat, like just during the, during the session, just to be able to have a conversation with some of them because they shared that they really didn't learn much about um, Asian Americans growing up or within their community or that that just wasn't something that was discussed. So just to hear that someone out there in the world was studying a local community and that it mattered and it was a personal connection first that I think that really excited them. And so everyone's excited, they're excited. I'm excited and we're going to launch this in Chicago um, this month and, and, and it's with Jeannie's amazing leadership. And, and so that's just been so inspirational. And then the second thing for me is just like, uh, I don't know, it just sounds kind of cheesy, but like we were talking about like with Anna too, just like how when we were all growing up, we didn't really see that much like diversity. Um, thinking about like, I guess the stereotype of professor and how when they saw me, they looked surprised, I, I think. And um, it was cool because it's like disrupting the narrative of, of how a professor dresses and looks and acts and, and, and that I can be me and do me and still do the meaningful research that, that matters the most uh, that's connected to my local community. And, and the local knowledge is that we can produce and that's meaningful. And so being the first in my family to go to college, coming from parents who were plantation worker farmers back in the Philippines, um, first generation college graduate and so forth. Like some of these students can personally identify with that. And I think it was really cool that I felt like I could see myself and them when they were younger, wishing that I knew somebody who was kind of out there and that I could be that somebody, I hope. <laughs> Even though my mental age is a little low, like still, it was really cool to connect. <laughs> and I, yeah, I just wanna say it was all about the representation. And even for me, just thinking like I was a history major in school, but I never had an Asian history professor and my students definitely saw themselves in you um, about a third of my class is Asian and April connected with one of my Filipina students and you know her like she is so excited about this project because she feels represented in it and I really have to um, say thank you to April for being so 
welcoming of my high school students because I could easily imagine people in academia and professors, you know, you are also busy with your own schedule, but like you literally carved time for my students in my class. You've Zoomed with us for two blocks now, you know, you carve time out to make room for them to help you with this. So I, I think it's, I, I you know, I, I know you were commending me, but I am commending you because that is, that is really special and such a great gift for us. Well, and it's an honor and a privilege. And I, and we both thank Anna because without, without this Harvard program, we would have never been able to connect. And so it's just been such an amazing opportunity to grow intellectually, personally, and across community in ways that would not have been possible otherwise. Incredibly moving to hear. We often say that the, the most important thing we can do is just put educators in touch with one another, to connect with one another. You all have the brilliance. You all are the experts in your field. And just holding that space is the most valuable thing we can do so much of the time. Um, I, just a small note, April, that you mentioned another disruption that I just wanted to know because it wasn't on my radar at all, was that? a key, a critical element of Jeannie's students now becoming involved in this public interview, uh, public scholarship and interview project was the concentration of research on the coasts of Asian American stories and the relative lack in the Midwest. Can you say a word about that? Yeah, so... Um... As somebody who has been like doing this work for like over the course of the past 20 years, I can only mention a handful that I'm aware of of research that really explores Asian Americans in the Midwest. Most of the work generalizes from the experiences of the West Coast and, and then some on the East Coast. And that's because Berkeley was on is on the West Coast and their ethnic studies department really like propelled a lot of that research on, on different ethnic uh, um, communities on the West Coast. So you've got this like bicoastal phenomena where a lot of, I mean, just generally speaking, immigration studies are, are drawn from that experience, but we really don't know much or as much as we should about the Midwest. And so Jeannie, again, I have to give it up to you. Like, thank you for, for the uh, opportunity to work with your students and with you because we're illuminating another dimension that just wasn't accessible before, so. <laughs> so wonderful. And again, in part, I mean, such a fascinating dimension of this. And I mentioned it in part, you know, we talk a lot about the, the critical component of recognizing ones that we call situatedness, positionality, and the partial perspective that affords, and that a growing awareness of uh, that, that partiality, those gaps, that can happen in part through personal introspection, through that work, but it really has to happen in community, right? That was just one example of a blind spot I didn't even know I had, as is the case for so many of these stories. I didn't know that I didn't know because I didn't know these stories existed. So last but certainly not least, we want to bring Audrey into this conversation, our student, a senior who is, who is so generous with her time at this end of the school year of her last year in high school. So Audrey, we'd just love to hear from you a little bit about your experience, similar to what I asked uh, Professor Manuang and, and um, but, uh, if I say Jeannie, I can say <laughs> Ms. Cooper. Um, tell us first a little bit just about what this was like for you, what was surprising, and then I'd love once more to hear from you and Jeannie about were these tools of religious literacy helpful? Like, what did they help you to understand about um, April's research? Welcome. <laughs> 
Um, so initially, I was very, very excited. I know not just myself, but a lot of my peers in the classroom. Um, like Mission Cooper said, she's probably one of the only Asian American teachers that I know of, especially in the social science realm. And kind of seeing this representation um, with the Mission Cooper and Professor Monolong when she came to speak with us, it was really exciting and uplifting as a Korean American myself. And kind of witnessing, seeing how these powerful women are kind of engaging in these conversations and kind of uplifting those who don't have the ability to. So as Professor Monolong came into our classroom through Zoom and explained her project. Um, it was very uplifting and exciting to see the work that she was doing. Um, I, um, myself and a friend and I, we worked with the Stop API um, Hate Youth Campaign. Um, they're centered in California, but we did like an online internship over the summer. And there we learned about ethnic studies and kind of uplifting the Asian American voices, especially um, after the rise in API hate crime specifically, and how we can advocate for these individuals and kind of relating that experience to Professor Monolong's um, studies. It was really just overall exciting to see how we're able to connect that. And again, with our World Religions class and how the things that we're learning about how religion is embedded in our culture, how it changes over time and just everything kind of colliding all at once is really, really interesting. Thank you so much for those those lovely reflections, Audrey. And you have multiple forms of leadership now um, in your school and community, right? Um, yeah, do you want to say a little bit more about what you've been working on? Yeah, so Mission Cooper is actually um, our school's Asian Student Association um, sponsor. So my friend and I, we came up to her one day asking her if she could help us in creating the Korean Club because we wanted a place where people can gather to kind of share the love of culture that we had ourselves. And having a safe and inclusive community was something that we thought was really, really important and was lacking in our school community. Um, especially as Professor Monolong said, um, in our school, we couldn't really see people celebrating that aspect of being Asian American. And we wanted to create a space where people can come and gather and whether you're Asian American or not, learning and always being educated in the sense of what's going on around us. I think that was a, a very big aspect of when we created the club. And from the Korean club, we were able to expand um, to the Asian Student Association, which we are today, and kind of creating that more inclusive space of kind of celebrating others and uplifting others and not just the AAPI community, but everyone else, all the other minorities and making sure that everyone is represented, that everyone is heard and that we recently had our showcase back in March. Um, one thing I said was that it's not just this one day that AAPI or any other minority should be represented and celebrated, but 
every day that we're here and we're present and it's just a very important thing and which is very admirable of what Professor Manalong is doing in her work of uplifting these Filipina nurses and their voices and what's been going on. Well, thank you so much, Audrey, for your leadership and congratulations, as you also know, and hopefully has been a theme that the idea of really um, highlighting and showcasing the agency that all of us and particularly young people have is also so critical to the work that we're hoping to do. And um, it's incredibly moving to hear about you connecting so deeply with your own agency within your community and the leadership that you're showing. I'm wondering, Jeannie, is there anything else you want to say on that, on Audrey's work and, and how it's connecting with other students in the school? I think quite simply, I mean, some of these students really understand that in order to change the narrative, you have to change the structures. And that's exactly what Audrey and Audrey Rowe and the other Audrey Kim did as well. Um, but there are other there are other leaders in that senior class that were doing the same thing. Like this year, for the first time, we um, a student created the Muslim Student Association. Uh, so yeah, I think I am very inspired by by these students, and I think that's part of the reason why I love being a high school teacher because you know you hear things in the news, and um, it's very difficult as a, as an adult to process some of these these things happening in the news. But when you're working with teens and you're working with youth and they just have so much, so much promise and so much fire and they wanna look forward to a brighter future and they're, they're trying to change the structures. And I think that is just really uplifting. Absolutely. And just to pull on that really critical articulation and this theme of stories, a really important, um, uh, a very powerful essay we draw on a lot by Freire and Macedo talks about reading the world and writing the world, right? So when we talk about being able to recognize these deep stories, it's exactly as you're just saying, Jeannie, it's not only that skill to be able to critically read and recognize them, it's that agency's piece of being able to reimagine, rewrite, reauthor those stories as you are all doing in these really important ways. So we have a couple questions um, in the chat box. So I wanna get to those for Dr. Madeline. And then I'm hoping we can have a little bit of time if there's any questions that you all wanna ask of each other. And then we're gonna have time for, for one more opportunity to hear directly from the voices of these nurses. So our first question is, Dr. Menelang, thank you so much for your important research and these powerful, heartbreaking firsthand accounts. Wow. My question, how do you think these Filipina American nurses experiences were affected or compounded by their proximity to military communities, since many of them mentioned that? That's a great question. And so some of you might be aware that the largest naval base in the world is in Norfolk, Virginia, which is in my hometown, like in that area, Virginia Beach, Virginia, that's 15 minutes away. And so um, that colonial history is also, while I talk about the Filipino nurses, it also connects to the Filipino men. And so a large uh, number of Filipino uh, men came to the United States by way of the US Navy, which would include my dad. So before, uh, after he was a plantation worker, he was able to uh, to to 
pass a test and become part of the U.S. Navy. And so that's also why we have one of the largest Filipino American communities on the Southeast is, uh, is because of the Naval base. And then also the co-occurring phenomena of the Filipino nurses who often marry each other. So, so that's, uh, that's, that's really the reason why we have so many. And then in terms of the experiences, I mean, it just, to put it plainly, it really uh, reverberated throughout our entire community. I mean, it just affected everyone. And, and then just on like a sociological level, like to put things in perspective, I can safely say that if you meet a Filipino in the United States, if they are not a nurse, then for sure they have a relative, whether a brother, sister, aunt, uncle, or someone in the family who is a nurse. And they might not even be in the United States. They might be in Israel or Japan or somewhere abroad or even Italy. And so um, it really just not only affected the, our community deeply as a whole, but just like thinking about it transnationally. So not only were we worried about family within the United States, but like our transnational family members too. And so it, I would say it was like a double compounding factor. For that. Second question, in the testimonies, did any of the nurses mention why, pardon me, why the use of their faith became constrained to survival in their workplace? Were they always unquestioning or did it become that way? And how did that change happen if it did? Ooh, that's a, that's a complicated question that's going to take some, some time to unpack. And I don't even know if I'll ever really be able to fully answer that. Um, I can just say what I shared earlier is that my theory is that because of their deep faith in God and saying that their citizenship is a blessing from God and that they literally just don't want to take it for granted or bite the hand that feeds them. And then when I do quotes, it's things that it's words that they've said that they just because of that, I think it kind of helped my theory is it, it held them back from complaining and from saying, no, I'm, I'm not staying over time. I'm not doing this. I'm not going to be the first one in and the last one out over and over again. And so I think that um, there is that complicated notion of, of, of how religion plays a role. And then as Anna was saying, like that the structural violence, it's, I mean, religion can conceal it, it can reveal it. And um, the cultural aspect of feeling that way religiously has very ambivalent effects. I mean, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying what happened and what I observed. Yeah, that reminds me of well as a, a key kind of intervention we often try and have is that there's a lot of discourse that's stuck in this binary conversation about is religion a force for violence, is religion a force for peace, and we say religion is a powerful force, right? It's not a binary, and that entering into that reality and asking the questions about what are the structural um, and contextual factors that lead that force um, to have both um, often simultaneously, right? Absolutely. Yeah, constructive um, and uh, um, yeah, sometimes deeply critical impacts. Um, it's critical. So thank you for highlighting that there. Um, I also want, this is going to be a third question for Dr. Manolite, but I want to make sure that you have a minute to talk about a dimension of your work, again, related um, really much to space, place, and context, and the fact that you're teaching at an HBCT, HBCU and that you've been writing about that context and what engaging um, another set of students in this interview project um, has wrought. So I do, let's take a minute to talk about that, that dimension of your work 
and then we'll see if you have questions for one another. Well, um, I'll be really brief because I don't realize the time. And so just thinking about going back to the time of COVID that we were all embodying that time, that time and space and overlapping with all this going on, George Floyd murder, the Black Lives Matter protests were happening. And my students who are like over 90% of them at my, at my school are, are Black Americans really felt the effects of that. And so that was co-occurring at the same time. And so thinking about that and really broadening that out and thinking about um, just different communities of color. And so I had mentioned what I had been going through in my journey and thinking about it within our local community. And they said, I didn't know that there are Filipinos in the community. I thought it was just you, Dr. A. Or, oh, I thought Asians are like Buddhist. And so, and it's not to say that they're ignorant. Again, it's just like blind spots. Like, how would you know if you didn't know? And I was like, yeah, actually, we have one of the largest commun uh, Filipino communities in our own hometown. And it was on their own interest and volition, being sensitive to uh, the social injustice going happening. They said, well, what can we do to be supportive and be an ally? And it was on their own that they said that. And so we talked about that. Like, how can we think about that more deeply? And, and so that's been really gratifying because they didn't know that they didn't know. And I'll be honest, I didn't know that they didn't know. So it was my blind spot too. And it came up through, through the, the stories of the Filipino nurses. And so now my students are deeply involved as well in, in developing ways of, of allyship that are meaningful and, and um, that uplifting social justice and, and bringing marginalized stories to the center and bringing it to light. Oh, fantastic. So we are closing in on five minutes left. We wanna have a little bit of time for that last clip. And Jeannie and Audrey, I just wanted to turn it back to you once more and say, hey, what's next? Uh, there's something you're looking forward to, to learn more here. Um, yeah, and are there any questions you would like to ask with anyone else and uh, any of our guests today? Uh, so what's next for us is we are going to start the interviews. So um, as Professor Manalang mentioned, she met with us today to give us training on how to conduct um, these interviews. And so we have our first one lined up Wednesday. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing some of these stories. And um, it, it, it's just kind of cool to see that it's like it's happening now. It's finally happening. Audrey, how about you? How, how are you feeling about it all? Yeah, we my friends and I, we were actually talking about it last night. We were all like sitting together and talking about it. But um, I think all of us are really, really excited about conducting the interviews and getting to hear these personal stories. I know a couple of us are pairing up within the class to go to these interviews or they're online, but um, conduct these interviews and getting to hear these Filipino American voices. Fantastic. April, how about you? And we have a late breaking question in the chat, which is how can we get involved as viewers? Oh, wow. Well, it, I mean, this is an open and ongoing project. So I'm always open to, to different possibilities. So you're welcome to contact me. Um, Anna has my contact information and we can always continue the conversation. And what's next Next is, well, um, Penn State University contacted me last week and they are interested in making a comic book. 
based on the Filipino nurses story. So I'm in, I'm in talks with them and knock on wood or like, hopefully something will work out with that. I'll keep you posted in it. I think it'd be really cool if that worked out. <laughs> That's exciting. I don't know if I've told you, but one of my past deep interests is the intersection of graphic novels and religious literacy. And we actually just had a graduate student here at RPL who did her capstone project looking at Persepolis graphic narratives um, and religious literacy. So we will definitely have Okay, to gotta connect with you then. That's really exciting. Thanks for sharing. Absolutely. And also just for folks in the audience, I wanna give a little pitch that thank you so much, Jeannie, for highlighting the certificate program, which is a really fantastic opportunity. I also want to say that we have free accessible online um, opportunities for training as well. So we have an introduction to religious literacy for educators, as well as three topic-based modules on art and imagination, um, on climate justice, and on local knowledges. So you can find those on our website and also reach out to me for more information. I can maybe put some information in the chat box. We are going to close out with one last clip from these nurses, but I just want to extend such deep gratitude to each and every one of you for your powerful work, your commitment to justice, the work that you're doing in education as educators, as students for connecting and modeling that agency. And it was just such an honor to, to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Rochelle, do you want to close our, our last clip? Before wrapping up, I asked what they would want the world to know. I think the um, public has sort of like stereotyped the Filipino American community as a silent minority. And I, I think they have to recognize that from a cultural perspective, we have suffered a lot of social political trauma, right? Coming from a country uh, that has been under a dictatorship for many, many years. So people need to understand the history before they can actually judge the why. Filipinos are mostly in the uh, medical field and they're not well recognized. That's how I see it. And I don't know why. I don't know why. Everyone needs to know that we all exist as a community and we're united no matter what color you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your profession is, that we all have the same needs and that our health is very important and that it doesn't matter what race you are, that we're all here together and that as a Filipino community, together we can make differences in people's lives. I hope that the, all the people out there understand that 4% of the nurses in the United States are Filipino Americans. And out of the 4% of those Filipino nurses, 31% died of COVID because mm -hmm. we were lines during the COVID pandemic and still are in the front line. So that is a sad statistic because it just shows that we as Filipino Americans are the ones out there ready to give it all, including our lives and whatever it takes to make sure that we are compassionate and caring towards the patients. And since those are the responsibilities that we're given, we take our profession very seriously. From our end, I think we can do more in trying to articulate who we are as a Filipino American community and what we can do to promote empowerment 
within our own uh, community. And, and and that's what PNAA has been all about since its inception in 1979. That it's okay to speak up and it's okay to acknowledge that even though we are a silent minority, we have done great strides in promoting ourselves and contributing to a large part to the healthcare industry here in America. We are not seen as just workers and we're not dispensable in a sense. We do our jobs. We do it to the best of our abilities. And I just would hope that people would take into account that we're here to help them. A lot of us as nurses, we do have caring hearts and we also have families that we're taking care of as well. So I think grace and kindness go around for everybody. wherever you go. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Sponsor, Religion and Public Life. Copyright 2023, Preston and Fellows of Harvard College.